0: So yeah, we worked on um, raising funds for a mini grant program um, to help organizations that were may or may not have been in kind of the civic space. I think the census provided a lot of opportunity for organizations that were, you know, wanting to stay nonpartisan, um, but the census affects everyone. And so we were able to kind of, Bring in new partners to either the democracy or civic space that may have not been involved. Or we're able to um, give money out to organizations that had done many campaign cycles and had, you know, had done a lot of voter engagement.
1: listening to Relish This, the Purpose Marketing Podcast. Here's your host, Stu Swineford. Hey everybody, Stu here with a really great episode of Relish This. My guest today is Jillian Winburn and she is the Executive Director of Together We Count. And Together We Count is this really interesting nonprofit that spins up activities once every 10 years um, as we approach the census, and they help create coalitions of people who are helping to make sure that as many people as possible are being counted for our uh, our census taking. We talked a lot about kind of the inspire phase of engagement, given that they have to try to figure out how to keep people engaged during this kind of lull and also have a real challenge with getting messages out and getting the word out about the census and, and how important it is. It was a really fun conversation where you know she she went into a, a ton of detail in terms of all the great work that they're doing over there. And I hope you enjoy it. I had a great time talking with Jillian. Here we go. Jillian, how are you today?
0: I'm doing well. Thanks.
1: Good. Thank you for being on the show. It's um, exciting to talk with you. I I think we first met over LinkedIn and I talked with, I think your former executive director over there at together we count and you're the new executive director. Is that right?
0: Yes. Um, It's it's um, I am the new executive director. Really. It was just because the census, the 2020 census lasted longer than we anticipated. So we were trying to brainstorm ideas on how to extend the program and extend the project and the organization. And really at the time that we were talking about extending and thinking about money ways, COVID was in full swing. So we really didn't want to divert any money or resources away from um, a lot of the philanthropic efforts that were going into um, into that emergency, which is ongoing. Um, So this was kind of the, one of the easiest ways um, for us is just to move our executive director to a senior advisor role, and then I kind of take over operations. Um, but she was still very much a part of the organization um, in a pretty hands-on way. But I just kind of took over the um, back end aspect.
1: That's awesome. So tell, yeah, I mean. It's- Doing a census is challenging in any year, much less one as hectic as last year was uh, for for all of us. Tell tell us a little bit more about your organization and and what you guys are doing and um and how things went.
0: Yeah, it's you know it's really funny that um, 2020 was so difficult because we assumed that the 2020 census would be very difficult from many years out. So. Really in 2016, and um, early 2017, uh, Rosemary Rodriguez, who has worked in city council, she's worked for a past Denver mayor, she's worked for past state senators, she's worked for senators as a state director. So she really has been plugged into Colorado for many years. And she's volunteered with the census since 1990. Oh, wow. Yes. So she has a lot of kind of personal experience with it. Um, And early on, um, particularly with the rhetoric from the Trump administration and just our general lack of trust in government, apathy about giving away information and really no one door knocking anymore. Mm -hmm. um, She saw this problem coming from miles away and knew that there had to be more of an effort than ever before. And so, you know, we couldn't have anticipated um, COVID-19 at all, but um, we did anticipate a lot of challenges. Um, And so we were able to at least build a pretty good infrastructure to support the organizations that were doing work. And, um, you know, that was just so critical to COVID-19 when everyone was in an emergency situation. There was no time or energy or capacity Um, for people to take on the census as well as their other priorities if they didn't already have it built into their um, organizations or if they didn't already have it, you know, financially, if they weren't also financially tied to doing census outreach. So we were uh, truly the hub organization um, on the nonprofit side. The census is a federal exercise, but has many partners statewide, regional, uh, national. And so we were really the kind of nonprofit hub organization, um, for the state of Colorado.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. So you, your organization gives grants and then helps other nonprofit organizations in the, in the census years. Is that, is that accurate?
0: Yeah. So we, uh, we, we had never existed in previous census cycles, Um, And as I kind of alluded to, the Census Bureau, really, their model for outreach um, really is reliant upon organizations kind of volunteering their time and energy and effort, which I think, you know, in the past has been varying degrees of successful. Um, But as we have, as we as a state and communities rely more and more on direct service providers and nonprofits, we knew that they would not have any capacity without any financial incentive to Mm -hmm. work on the census. And, you know, we spent many, many moons and, um, you know, many years talking with nonprofit organizations and they all really said the same thing, like we need money. So, yeah, we worked on um, raising funds for a mini grant program um, to help Organizations that were may or may not have been in kind of the civic space. I think the census provided a lot of opportunity for organizations that were, you know, wanting to stay nonpartisan, um, but the census affects everyone. And mm-hmm. so we were able to kind of bring in new partners to either the democracy or civic space that may have not been involved, or we we're able to um, give money out to organizations that had Done many campaign cycles and had, you know, had done a lot of voter engagement and stuff like that. So, gotcha. yeah, it was a really pretty diverse coalition, and it also, you know, a lot of our work bled into other work nation that was being done nationwide, and it also helped us create a community so that when something like um, the grant program for census outreach from the state of Colorado was around. Mm-hmm. There are enough people that knew, um, uh, what needed to be done, what level of, of engagement this would take. Um, you know, we were not a lobbying organization, but there were partners around that were able to be informed and say, you know, this is, this is going to take some serious money. And we think the state should be able to, um, contribute to that significantly which they were able to with their with the six million dollar grant fund so really just you know building um, coalitions and the the other funny thing about the census is that you know it is a federal exercise and as many of us know anything to deal with the feds is you know much more complicated than you would imagine and so one of the main things we really took on was training. Um, uh, because I always say the census is very deceptively complicated, um, right. cause you're dealing with people and you're dealing with their houses and, uh, you're dealing with people answering what they may feel as, um, personal information and personal identifiable information. So mm-hmm. it got really complicated really quickly. And we, uh, wanted to make sure that we were a conduit of information, um, because we know there's, we know trusted community leaders and trusted nonprofits, uh, they do not want to, they want to make sure that they stay trusted and they don't want to lie and they don't want to give false information to, um, the people in their community.
1: Right. So, so it sounds like it was, you know, a multi-pronged kind of effort where there was a, an information distribution component where you're trying to just get out, uh, to, to the citizens and people who are being counted, um, you know, what to expect and, and, you know, allay some of those fears, um, that may be, may have existed as well as try and mobilize a a volunteer force.
0: Exactly. And, you know, it's, it's really challenging the census cycle because it's every 10 years. And so there's just very few, um, you know, even people at nonprofits that um, remember the last census, or if they do remember the last census, they don't really remember the details of what was done or what worked best. And we're, you know, 10 years ago is a long time ago. We Mm -hmm. have, um, you know, especially the 2010 to 2020 jump, we have, you know, extreme advances in social media and technology. And so it's really hard to, plan for it. And it's really hard to, um, you know, I think there are a lot of lessons to be taken from previous census cycles, but it does feel like you're almost reinventing the wheel each time. And so it really takes a lot of training and, um, it just takes a lot of support more so than one might imagine.
1: (laughs) That's, it's certainly sounds like a challenge. I can, I can only imagine you get Yeah, you 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 basically get tossed in the deep end every ten years, and um, you know, figure it out, and then by the time the next census comes around, a lot of those people who have that knowledge are, you know, have gone on to other things probably, and so you have to just retrain people constantly.
0: Yeah, and you know, it's it's people change jobs. I mean, that's just a fact of life, Um, and. Yeah. Circumstances change. I mean, I don't blame anyone or it's, you know, it's just kind of inherent in, um, the 10 year cycle, but it, it, it does make it more challenging and especially when a lot of the work is, is not assumed to be on a volunteer basis. Mm-hmm. Um, you just have people who do even have experience just may or may not have the capacity to really take up the charge. Right. Um, And so that is, you know, that is a lot of loss of um, time and energy. And, you know, you can't always replicate that again.
1: Right. How did it go in state? What what were your results? Do you feel like, you know, based upon the, you know, coming into it with some trepidation, how, how did things actually turn out?
0: The interesting thing is now it's, it's very interesting that we we know more now than we have in previous census cycles. Um, the Census Bureau has been better about kind of releasing information. And particularly with the digital census, uh, they were able to give us kind of in-time measurements of where certain areas were doing better than others. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, we we really, I'll, I'll just, I'll start geographically, and then I'll kind of dive a little bit into the numbers. And then the timeline is still very, very messed up for the census and the impact. Um, you know, so geographically, uh, the other aspect is our most reliable data in preparation for 2020 was 2010 census data. Okay, um, And so that's really difficult in a place like Colorado where we've had pretty expansive growth mm-hmm. and especially in the Denver Metro area, but also in the Western slope. So we were already kind of, and that's, you know, we we're already kind of working from a deficit in that sense that we knew these communities had changed a lot. Um, and so that's why it took so much engagement and talking to, everyone we possibly could to make sure that we knew how the communities had changed. So we could use, you know, the qualitative and the quantitative um, aspects when we were looking at our maps and our our numbers. Um, in terms of, you know, really how COVID impacted the census, it was pretty brutal nationwide, but I would say that it really hit us at a bad time um, in the mountain areas. And that was particularly because the um, ski areas closed. Mm -hmm. So if we have um, statewide lockdown happening March 15th, the census online portal opened March 12th. Okay. So you're at least able to be online. Um, But particularly in these kind of what they, what the census Bureau calls group quarters, um, a lot of in-person in-person canvassing, um, that was supposed to commence on, um, March 20th, around March 20th. So that was all suspended. So right. basically if you lived in a rural area of Colorado that doesn't receive mail consistently, or you have a PO box, you probably didn't know that the census was happening maybe until June. Okay. So we lost a lot of months in critical areas. Um, that we that really just we couldn't really do anything about um so we you know and there were definitely pockets of the front range area where you know we um where we lagged behind but the the good thing is that we were kind of able to see that sort of early Um, Mm -hmm. and so we were able to kind of at least do our best to course correct um, and try and help specific communities do targeted ads, um, target social media, stuff like that. Um, so we, because of the COVID delays, um, you know, the whole operation was delayed. We had, you know, the online portal was up until October, f- October 15th, but we did have the delays in the door knocking, um, pro- operation, which is really critical. So Due to those delays, we won't get the official census numbers um, until late 2021, and this will impact redistricting um, and a whole host of other aspects that the Census Bureau hasn't exactly (laughs) told us yet. Um, But really, the delays were just um, critical. The initial numbers are that in Colorado, we potentially likely missed around 64,000 people. Um, which is not insignificant. It's a large number. Um, I think the questions that we will always be looking for is who do we think those populations were? Where were they located? Um, And we we can have a little bit of a a sense of where they might be located just based on um, the data that the Census Bureau released, but that's sort of where we're at right now. So we didn't, and I, you know, in any census, you do miss some people. There are people that are overcounted, and there are people that are undercounted. Um, but the two critical elements are the rural populations, which is a significant part of our state, were really delayed in receiving any census information. And the second population is the college kids. So right. typically, college kids are counted where they're living on April first. And that can be, you know, their residential dorm, or it could be, you know, if they're living in a college town on off-campus housing. Mm -hmm. So when you had those kids sent home before April 1st, there was a lot of confusion on um, where they should be counted. And so, you know, it was very confusing on the Census Bureau and on our end. And it was really challenging to communicate that to To our grantees and to our nonprofit partners and to our coalition um, because things were changing daily and um, we really just didn't have a good sense of the timeline and the operation. So it was it was very chaotic. um, And it's still I would say it's still pretty chaotic in terms of them combing through the data and making sure that it's accurate.
1: So are you, are you guys, are you still active right now or has the, has the nonprofit kind of spun down for the time being until, until we approach the next census? Are you, do you run full-time, um, you know, throughout that 10 year cycle?
0: Yeah. Um, so we are winding down. Um, ideally I think all census work should work in between the 10 year cycle, but, Mm -hmm the reality of, you know, nonprofit work is that, you know, it's it's not necessarily realistic to continue to do census work uh, for the next, you know, four or five years without um, anything concrete. Ideally, um, you know, we will take kind of this information and utilize it for other, you know, statewide issues such as, you know, vaccine um, hesitancy, you know, any, you know, other civic engagement. I think, um, you know, we were, we were a temporary organization that we already we always kind of said that we were going to be a temporary organization, which I'm not sure if we should have said out loud (laughs) too much, (laughs) but uh, we were really lucky to be fiscally sponsored by Rose community foundation. And they gave us a lot of space and time to, um, to build this. And they were just so supportive. Um, but, you know, it was an interesting organization because we had never had census. we had never had an organization like this before, p- particularly for the census. And it was really um, a long-term campaign and kind of a point in time. So I think those are really valuable organizations, but they are challenging in where they housed? How do they look? How do right. they pivot? Um, and I think, you know, part of the reason is Rosemary is kind of semi-retiring uh, which she has done before, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, I will continue to work in this space, but it just, it just didn't really make sense. Um, but we're hoping, and we have been able to talk to some kind of, statewide partners on making sure that this, um, information kind of lives on. Right. Um, but yeah, ideally we would be able to, what they call evergreen, or at least that's what the census people say. Mm-hmm. Um, but just didn't, we just couldn't really figure out a way to make that happen. Gotcha. Cycle.
1: Gotcha. So does the bulk of your revenue <clears throat> come from grants and, and partnerships or where, where do you, where are you funded?
0: Yes. Yeah, so we are almost um, fully funded by Colorado philanthropic organizations. Um, we did receive a pretty sizable grant from a national advocacy organization that was um, kind of a group of national funders um, that kind of pooled their money together to give out grants to people working on the state level. But we were mostly funded by um, Colorado foundations.
1: Interesting. And does that fundraising does that typically happen during that the five year kind of on cycle that I heard you talk about a little bit, or do you start fundraising fundraising right away for for twenty thirties um, census, for example?
0: Um, I think there's a couple of different ways that we think that you know there's what we did and what we think will be better in the future. Um, a number of cities did create positions for census outreach coordinators, and we think that more cities and counties should do that. Um, we think that they should write it into their budgets starting in the in probably twenty twenty seven, and okay. I ideally tie it a little bit more to economic development. I think that is one component that we didn't quite make the connection early enough. Um, because the census is really economic development. It's mm-hmm. it's paying for schools and jobs and roads and, you know, opportunity zones and, you know, community developed gr- block grants are all based on census. So um, ideally, that is one way. We do think that the state should continue to um, make this a, uh, you know, legislative priority. Uh, they were able to allocate $6 million, which was not insignificant. Um, but you know, we had a report done by the Colorado fiscal Institute that called for $12 million for, mm. you know, robust outreach. So we assume we know that it will continue to take that money, take that much. Um, and really this is hinge. This is dependent upon the federal level, um, making census work still pretty voluntary on the state and community level. So. We don't anticipate that the Census Bureau will be able to have more resources for state and local, um, either nonprofits or governmental organizations. So while we were, were really happy that the philanthropic organizations, you know, took a took really a gamble, they you know they had never really had to invest in census work before. Um, so while we're really happy, we also think that there should be continued funding streams um, from, you know, state and uh, local agencies because it affects so much of our state, our bottom line. Right. Um, right. And it's, you know, it's it's what we're, what's what we have for 10 years. So I think we, I think we were really lucky and um, we were able to tap into great networks and, um, really had great support behind us. Um, but ideally we would like the support to be a little bit more institutionalized in the government and it's, it won't happen at the federal level. Just, you know, I can see that on the horizon, but at the state and local level.
1: Yeah. It's interesting. I like the idea of this economic play. Um, you know, typically, one of the things that I've found I'm on the steering committee of Colorado outdoor business Alliance. And, and one of the things that we've noticed is, is just really framing the discussion in a way that's going to resonate with the the person you're having that discussion with um, can be really effective. And so we're all about um, environmental causes and, and um, you know, land stewardship and, and lands conservation and things of that nature. And <clears throat> when framing arguments or, or discussions, I guess, uh, around, um, around those issues, depending upon the audience, we tend to recommend that, um, that people come at that discussion from a a variety of different ways. And when, when you're speaking perhaps with, with, um, you know, more green or progressive candidates, you can, you can really come at it from that environmental stewardship kind of language and perspective, but when you're speaking with, um, you know, someone who's more fiscally conservative and, and, you know, business oriented, um, just adjusting the way to have that conversation so that it comes from that perspective of, of, you know, small business growth or just economic, um, stability, um, can be just a really, it's it's just really interesting how you have to change that argument when when you're when you're making it based upon who who you're speaking with and um and so i can see how how coming at it from different perspectives when you're when you're trying to to get people on board with funding um could be a really interesting challenge for you guys
0: <laughs> yeah and honestly that was my favorite thing about talking about the census was it was literally like take any topic and I will relate it back to the census. (laughs) (laughs) So we had, I had a couple presentations and, you know, we live in Colorado. We have a lot of people that just choose to live off the grid Mm -hmm. and do not want anything to do with local state or, I mean, especially federal government. So, you know, I had a lot of those conversations and, And there was, you know, there was some pushback of just like, this doesn't impact me. Like, I don't care. I'll just skip this one. I'll sit it out. And, um, you know, they had obviously come to whatever community event or um, senior event. I did a lot of senior events. And so I would say, oh, well, how did you get here today? Right. Uh, What road did you drive in on? Because I guarantee you that, you know looking at our transportation budget in the state of Colorado, like most of our projects are now reliant on the federal government. So the fact that you are able to get groceries in your mountain community is because we have, you know, federal highway dollars in Colorado to pay for the funding of those roads. So we got a little lucky with the census, but I do, I absolutely agree with your point that um, it really is how you frame it. And, particularly with, with funders, you know, they have their own priorities. And I think that, you know, that is, that's a great aspect and obviously integral to the, to their organization. But um, with the census, it was really just, you know, this impacts so much and everything. Um, it was really easy to, to relate it yeah. and, and bringing up the Clara outdoor business Alliance I think that was one area that we really just could not get our feet under. Um, you know, the census is nonpartisan. And right. in the past, in 2010, the the National Census Bureau has had pretty good um, relationships with McDonald's and Walmart and, you know, printing it on receipts and, you know, even just really simple stuff like that. And we re- we just didn't have that this year. Right. And that was pretty much, I will personally say due to the politicalization of it by the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we had a number of businesses that just were like, it's just, it feels too political and that I hope, I hope will change um, by 2030 because it's just, it was just the most silly argument. Um, And, you know, I would just be like, but it's in the constitution. (laughs) How can it be political? Um, So, yeah, no, I think, and that's and that is one of the that is one thing we kind of started to do at the end was to talk about economic development. And it's not my background, it's not necessarily Rosemary's background. So um it did take us kind of a little bit of time to kind of understand that landscape and be like, Yeah, this is exactly economic development.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I like that you figured that out in terms of, of being able to, f- to start the conversations from that perspective, perhaps in, uh, in 2027 or whenever you start to ramp back up, um, mm-hmm. you know, having that as the, as kind of a, a framing opportunity is, uh, I think is, is pretty valuable. It's interesting too. You mentioned the, the nonpartisan component of it and how it did get politicized a bit in this past year or this past cycle. Um, but it I mean, that must be an interesting path to to trod as well, where you have you know foundations and organizations who may have some kind of political motivation or or you know desired slant. Um, you know how how are you how are you keeping those people engaged and and excited about what you're doing and maintaining that very, you know middle, middle ground position that you need to, to maintain.
0: Yeah. It, it, it had its, I wouldn't say it was overall challenging, but it it did have its challenges. I think it helped that, um, the census has happened before. So it wasn't this like completely new process. Um, it started with the founding of our country. Um, we really just made sure to highlight communities, um, and highlight the community impact. I think that was always our main focus. Um, but also it, w- it allowed us to make sure that the narrative um, stayed true to what we were doing. So, you know, the Census Bureau, the Census Bureau has a definition of hard to count, which, mm-hmm. you know, they look at historic, you know, you can call it historically undercounted. And a component of that is, you know, it's kind of the, the communities you might expect, like immigrants, communities of color, but it also is rural. Mm-hmm. All of rural America is hard to count uh, for various reasons and renters. And so, you know, you have such a, swath, a wide swath of people in that definition. And so we were kind of able to utilize the Census Bureau, even even though some people at the top were not, were working against that um, and we also use the Census Bureau's own research and we would present that in meetings, especially to kind of funders and to, um, you know, high level people that were interested. And we were saying, and the Census Bureau's research was, um, <laughs> due to rhetoric, a lot of communities do not want to respond to the census. And so, you know, making sure that we had, um, not only anecdotal information from the state, but national research um, was pretty key into um, taking kind of taking the stress off of the partisan aspect of the census. Um, And we just, you know, we didn't engage everyone. I think that is another component as some people just didn't view it as um, super important, um i will say at the end it was really interesting we did get more people that were probably more involved more passionate about redistricting Mm -hmm. um when they kind of heard the census might not be going as well they uh you know colorado is is poised is on is right now poised to get another congressional seat so you had some people kind of at the end calling that were concerned about that aspect of like well we want to make sure we get the congressional seat and and you were like, where were you three years ago? <laughs> but that's to be expected. Um, so yeah, I think it's just, you know, in any kind of coalition work, you have people come in early, you have people come in late, and um, you just try and stay on message. And, you know, having our program be statewide and focusing statewide really allowed us to bring the conversation back to Coloradans, because that's that's what this work was about was making sure that our state is counted because if it's not, we all suffer.
1: Right. Right. That's, that's really, um, I mean, it's just, it's just fascinating. All of the, all the things you had to juggle there to, to get the job done. What portion of your, of your outreach or of of your, your operating budget was around that outreach piece. Um, in terms of just ed, just kind of citizen education,
0: yeah, you know that's a good question. I I think we put most of you know our method was train the trainer. So we would, I don't know if I we probably should have had a larger budget. I will say I, we didn't necessarily do the best job with social media. Um, mm-hmm. that was not, um, something we prioritized that we probably should have. Um, but we really focused on being the conduit from the messages we developed ourselves and from national advocacy organizations like Nileo education fund, the national leadership on, um, civil and human rights. You know, they had staff and they had, they have policy shops, they have communication shops and so they were kind of presenting us with um, national messages and then we would kind of filter it through and take it and interpret, interpret it through the Colorado lens um, and then pass it on to these organizations. Because as a new organization, we had no kind of community clout anywhere, right? Right. Um, right. But I will say in terms of, we did spend a significant amount of of our budget, I would say probably about 30% to make sure that these nonprofits were um, up to date with their communication. So that, that's, okay. it kind of ties back to that training. So we, mm-hmm. we developed a census guidebook. It was about 10 pages and it, you know, it was kind of a glossy color, um, spec- color, tried to make it color specific, but, you know, After the training, they could take this and they could either, um, use it with their promotoras or they could use it with their other staff, um, and have a resource right there, uh, where we didn't, they didn't have to call us every time they had a question. So we had that in English and Spanish. Um, we had kind of just like, luckily basic outreach cards that didn't have a lot of dates on them. So we could use them throughout the duration as the dates were changing. Um, and the other component is that we wanted to make sure that the information was as open source as possible. So I think particularly with the coalition aspect, um, we did pay uh, a cartographer to create a kind of digital map of all of the grantees. So okay. instead of the grantees having to go through us, if they wanted to contact someone you know, in their region or in their area, they could just use this resource, go online and see who else got funded, um, and where they were working. Cause, uh, that was the other thing that was really interesting to us is a lot of these nonprofits are, you know, they're expanding into different areas, either permanently or temporarily. And so their offices might be in Denver, but they work in Park County or they work, um, you know, and they might have one staff member in like the San Luis Valley, but Mm -hmm their, you know, their main office is in Denver. So we create an open source map just to, you know, with contact information and kind of a little bit of details um, to be able to see, you know, we don't want to be gatekeepers of this information. Like this is, this this is a coalition. This is, you know, this is really important work and we want to make sure that everyone knows as much information as possible. Um, And that is why we provided our trainings for free. We gave out our materials for free. We really tried to be just like a, a useful resource for um, these organizations. Um, and so, yeah, I guess that would be in the wider comms budget. Uh, but it, w- it was a significant aspect of our, our budget.
1: Yeah, that's that's cool. I One of the things I heard you mention was v- that you didn't have a great – um, or a robust social media presence, um, but did do, did all of these groups and organizations that came into that coalition? I'm assuming that they ha- had you know mobilized quite a few volunteers, or or potentially had a, a, a wider reach opportunity that you could tap into.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and um, you know, especially with COVID, most organizations pivoted to some type of online engagement, um, which became really important. So, you know, we were able to make sure that those organizations had the good, the right messaging and the correct information, um, available to, for, for their sites. Mm -hmm. Um, we did do some Facebook ads, uh, which was more challenging for census than um, typically because Facebook de- determined that census was a cause. So uh, you had to, uh, yeah, <laughs> you had to go through a little bit more hoops to make sure that you were able to verify your identity. Um, mm-hmm. But the benefit was that we had very little disinformation on, on Facebook, which was really helpful Um, obviously as we've seen the opposite (laughs) effect of that. Um, so yeah, so I think we, we did do some of that, but you know, social media, it's definitely not my expertise at all. Um, and so I can't really speak to it, but you know, we did, we did do pretty well with our engagement online, but I think, you know, it's, it's really hard to remember back, but there were, we, I think in 2020, we went we really went through some roller coasters of like really engaging online and then really disengaging online and kind of the yin and yang of it. So it was really hard to put a finger down on it. Um, We did have some uh, mini grantees and they, they did phone banking. So especially if their project was completely in person and they really had to pivot, they, they did have a number of volunteers kind of on deck. And so they're like, how can we, how can we do this phone banking You know, and we helped develop a script, um, things like that. So there was a lot of pivoting and there was a lot of um, movement at the end as well. So it was it wasn't easy, but I think, you know, I was really impressed with how the organizations were able to handle it.
1: Well, it sounds like he, you know, you made, made the best of what you could do. Kind of like everyone was, was trying to do last year. It's, it's like, well, okay, what do we do now?
0: Exactly. Let's give
1: this a whirl. Um, I, I love the idea that you've mentioned a couple of times in terms of teaching the teachers and, um, and just empowering people to, to have, um, you know, the tools and the know-how and, and the authority um to to be able to distribute that story and that kind of falls in where one of the one of the phases of our in kind of engagement life cycle that we that we think about um it falls into this inspire phase where really trying to get your all of your constituents or all of your stakeholders to just further the cause in any way that they are able and whether that's making a donation or volunteering themselves or just sharing sharing the the word and spreading that message as far as, as you can, um, you know, tapping into that wider network and giving them the tools to stay on message, I think would be something to, to really keep in the, in your back pocket for, for when, uh, w- when we roll into the 2030 census time and um, you know, who knows what will be going on then, but uh, um, but at least that becomes kind of a you know, an, an arrow in your quiver that you can, that you can deploy to, um, you know, to help spread that message and make sure that it's accurate.
0: Yeah. And it was, it was, it was great for us. So we had a half day of training that we did make mandatory, um, for the grantees, but we opened it up to, um, anyone that wanted to join. And I think, you know, particularly when you have something like the census that seems so, um, Kind of boring to a lot of people. <laughs> right. You know, when you kind of talk through it and get into the weeds of it, you're talking about how you identify racially and, you know, particularly the fear around the administration trying to add a citizenship question. Right. And so you're getting into these like pretty weedy aspects of how do we talk through this and how do I self identify? I don't see myself on this form or like this is. You know, especially if you're from Middle East or North Africa, you know, right. technically the advice is to designate yourself as white, and so it was those tough conversations of, but I don't receive any benefit from labeling myself as white because I don't look white right. to other white people. You know, it was it was those conversations that made, um, that made the census more personal. And it got over, it helped. I don't think it fully did, but I think it helped them get over their reservations um, and helped us understand what those reservations were. You know, I can be very systems oriented and kind of forget about the people and, uh, you know, and then we would be in these trainings and they're just like, you're telling me the government is actually going to keep this information safe. Like when have they ever done that? And you're like, okay, let's (laughs) talk through that. Like, let's talk about how the Census Bureau is surprisingly different. And I don't know why it is, or I can tell you why it is. Um, and I think, you know, one of the biggest challenges in the beginning was talking with the Asian American population, um, because in 2012, the Census Bureau kind of admitted to the fact that, um, they use census numbers, um, for you know Japanese internment Uh and so dealing with that cultural legacy um in an age where you know no a lot of people don't trust the government more um you know there are some real kind of recent cultural traumas and um very valid valid concerns um that we really needed to talk through and so that that training helped us bridge some trust with the people that were actually going to be talking to individuals um, and make it, you know, and, and having those conversations makes kind of the engagement not as robotic or not as, I think, fake is what a lot of people would kind of describe it as is, um, yeah. you know, inauthentic.
1: Yeah. I was about to say, it sounds, it sounds more authentic, which in theory brings, even more trust to the, to the table. And, um, and, and it's interesting that you mentioned authenticity because that's one of the things that <clears throat> I think harms both, you know, for-profit and nonprofit profit uh, organizations out there is, is correspondence and, and automation, which all seem good. And we've moved pretty far in that direction in, in a lot of respects, but we've gotten away from that o- authenticity where, you know, emails and and messaging and um, advertising all feel like they're coming from machines as opposed to coming, you know, from a person to a person. And so, there's seems to be a pretty pretty decent movement or or a desire to kind of step back from that and come back to the idea that that we can create interactions and engagements that are that are helping to build relationships and that that are more authentic and just taking the time to craft um, you know messaging even if it is going out in bulk you know craft messaging that that does feel like it comes from a place of authenticity um, and and so it's it's interesting that you're that you've seen that in in your work as well
0: yeah and i you know i'm i'm relatively new to this space but I had the pleasure of working with, you know, someone like Rosemary who has been doing a version of outreach almost her entire career, whether it was, you know, whether it was from a official place or an unofficial place. And, you know, a lot of things have changed about it, but the, a lot of core elements have not, which is, you know, talking to people or interacting with people Mm one-on-one and, you know, people don't want to be lied to. They don't want to be misled. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of just like kind of basic outreach and kind of elements that I think we can tend to forget w- when we have like kind of new flashy um, technologies, which yeah, are really absolutely. great and totally benefit. Um, but I think, you know, we really, have to kind of go back to the basics. And that was, that was one of the things we would talk to a lot of organizations about of like, you know, who's your intake specialist? Like, should we, you know, could we train them? They're the Mm -hmm. ones, you know, at at your front office or could you hot, you know, a lot of organizations did hire a a temporary census outreach coordinator um, because it, it, it's a full-time job and it takes a lot of work and it, it really takes that, um, you know, human interaction.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really does, and and that's a piece that it, it it is really just interesting to see how the how things are shifting back to this idea of authenticity and this idea of of you know coming at it from from a one to one instead of instead of always thinking about how can I how can I streamline this to. Get the message to the most people possible.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are
1: you do do you have plans in the next you know during this kind of downtime to be somewhat active in terms of just education in in you know building trust in the census at all or or is it is it something that just ramps up starting about three or three or four years out?
0: Um, you know, I think from my my position it would probably be ramping up um you know i I do love the census. So I would always talk about it um to anyone, but you know the census bureau they um, had positions called partnership specialists, and there has been and they were the ones really they were kind of community organizers they weren't called that, but that is what they were doing. Um, Unfortunately, they didn't have a lot of resources to provide to organizations or local governments, but they were kind of the organizing body on the ground. And we had great staff in Colorado and, you know, we worked really well with them, um, even if we did have critiques of the Census Bureau itself. Um, And so there has been national calls to the Census Bureau to keep that to keep at least a, a number of those people on staff. Um, throughout the process to not only do to, to kind of keep a little bit of the coalition alive, but also to do some education. And I know that they have done that in the past, um, but I'm not quite sure what that will look like right now um, because I know a lot of, a lot of the partnership specialists, their contracted did end right. um, in October. So I think there, there has been discussions, um, and I think that this we're poised to at least retain more of that information from 2020 than we were in past census cycles, but it's just, there's really not a ton of avenues right now. Mm -hmm. And I think particularly with COVID, you know, we have some like really serious um, element, you know, (laughs) elements of daily life that we really need to focus on. So uh, there just hasn't quite been an appetite Um, but hopefully, um, you know, at least the, uh, federal census bureau can maybe keep, keep that charge up.
1: Nice. Well, it sounds, it's just so interesting. It's such an interesting topic. And, um, you know, it, it comes around every, every 10 years and we don't necessarily think about it a whole lot in between those times. And that's what I'm sort of getting at is if there was a way to keep, you know, keep it at, you know, obviously not top of mind, but at least kind of back there, like, Oh yeah, that, that's this thing that we get to do every, every so often. Um, and, and just, you know, continuing to people to get people to, to understand why it's in their best interest to, um you know to engage with and and be, be part of that that process and and making sure that everyone gets counted
0: yeah and i think you know this has been a conversation that's been happening with other advocacy organizations that i talk to nationwide is um you know maybe not necessarily keeping the census drum beat alive but you know pivoting to different you know, kind of keeping the coalition alive. And I think as we've seen with, you know, COVID-19 there, there are instances where we need really quick kind of coalition building rat and, ra- you know, very rapidly.
1: Right.
0: Um, so a number of organizations are working on redistricting, which is kind of the most common um, sort of next kind of civic advocacy step for a lot of organizations. Mm-hmm. Um we have two organizations, Common Cause, and um, the Rural Community Resource um, Center. I think that's <laughs> <I'm> blanking <on laughs> the name. Um, they're sort of leading the charge on kind of the redistricting engagement outreach, um, but mm-hmm. a number of you know nationwide organizations are pivoting to that. We are not, um, but I do think that there is a lot of ways that. This type of network can continue on um, either through you know public health means or civic or anything like that. so there there are still kind of talks about that um, but yeah, I think it's you know the nonprofit cycle is just it, it, the longevity can just feel very challenging and yeah and yeah be very especially. Difficult
1: especially on that 10 year cycle. I mean, maybe that's Mm -hmm. the, maybe that's the play is to continue to come up with ways that these organizations and these, these groups that have come together to form this coalition can stay active in, you know, in, in that, that down cycle between, between the years when they're really super, super engaged and super busy. And, uh, you know, I think that, you know, distribution of, of public health information is certainly an opportunity there. Um, you know, there's, there may be some other, other things, um, you know, to keep, to keep all those people, you know, engaged in the, during the downtime.
0: Right. Yeah. We'll, we'll see.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, this has been really super fun. I'm, I'm excited to, to know a bit more about, about, uh, how this part part of our of our process works and to hear all the great things that you guys have done to you know to help fuel it um, how can people find out more about either the census or or about about your organization you know together we count
0: yeah i think the easiest way would be to go to togetherwecount.org and there you can see our we did a story map of kind of you know, the timeline and there's a lot of visuals and maps of like how the census went in 2020. Okay. Um And then also there is kind of a, you know, we wrote a kind of policy guide guidebook, for lack of a better term for the 2030 census. So that is just sort of use utilizing our best practices that we did in the 20. 20- 20 census and getting either local governments, nonprofits to start thinking about 2030 and we provide kind of sample timelines, things we don't anticipate changing on the federal level, um, things that worked and things that, that really didn't work. So all of those can be found on our website and then you can contact me through that website um, as well. So we will have, um, we'll have those up we were going to keep everything up through the redistricting cycle, but since we're not entirely sure when that will happen, we will, we will, you know, continue to make sure that website stays up probably through the end of the year.
1: Oh, that sounds great. I I would encourage everyone to go check that out. Um, I'd like to end all of my shows with an ask or, or an opportunity for you to give people something to do. I I like um, the idea of having conversations that lead to action so if um, you were to ha- ask people to take an action after listening to the show today, what, what would that action be?
0: Oof. I feel, <laughs> it's funny. I feel like I've been asking people for so much for so long. Um, so there, I'm, there's the part of me that's like, Oh, I've, t- I've tapped myself out of that. Um, I would say, I would just ask people to, you know, really pay attention to redistricting I, it feel it can feel very partisan, but there is a lot that can be done, just as a community member. Um, you know, they take testimony um, on how the lines are drawn. You know, there's a there's a large process that might shift a little bit based on when the numbers come out. But I would just, you know, pay attention to that. Kind of keep <laughs> skip over the the partisan elements of it. Um, and the other aspect is you know in between the the 20 in between the decennial censuses um the census bureau releases the american community survey and that is really the only way that we can kind of judge how accurate the 2020 census was and also provides us more in time information so you know it goes out to a very small percentage of the population, but if you do receive that, please fill it out. It does take a long time, um, but it is really important to us. So I would say those nice. two things.
1: When does that usually come out?
0: It comes out every year. It only goes out to about, um, I think it's like point, it's, I think it's five percent of the US population, but uh, for some reason in 2020, we just kept getting so many calls i feel like they were targeting colorado so it does it does go out it takes about 45 minutes to an hour to fill out but okay it's really important information for us
1: i actually think i may have gotten one of those earlier this last might year. have yeah.
0: they, and they were sending them out in 2022 which we begged them not to but
1: i think um, i got it in 2019 actually if i'm, if I'm yeah you might have yeah
0: yeah yeah so also I, th- very I filled
1: important. it out. I remember okay. it taking a while, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I th- I'm pretty sure I got one of those. That's pretty neat. Well, yeah. thank you so much for being on the show, Jillian. It was really wonderful to hear what you have been up to this past year. I'm sure that you're ready for a little bit of a break and um, I'm excited to, to keep in touch and hear how things start to ramp back up.
0: Great. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks. All right. There you have it. Another great episode of Relish This. Thanks for listening. If you would like to learn more about how to apply the audience engagement cycle to expand your organization's mission, there are two things you can do. Right now, you can go to missionuncomfortablebook.com to download a copy of my book. And while you're there, you can get your purpose-driven marketing score to see where you can unearth some gold for your organization. If you'd like to listen to back episodes of the show or sign up to be a guest, go to relishstudio.com podcast. That's it for this week. I'll be back next week for another great episode of Relish This.